Welcome to another episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. Gord Cook, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much, Alan, for having me. Hey, we're so excited uh, that you could join us and bring your knowledge, your experiences, your Canadian perspective, um, and certainly your experiences working in cold weather environments, because um, I, I know that can be challenging in terms of the, you know, what uh, stresses on the home and, the, and the, from a building science perspective and so forth. But uh, yeah, really good to see you. The, the question that everybody wants to know is, when were you last in the U.S. and when are you coming back? Well, that's a good question. I actually came back March 16th from uh, Milwaukee, the day after Canada announced if anybody's coming from the States, they have to quarantine for 14 days. Nice. So I immediately, uh, well, I would say fortunately, had to drive up to my cottage, my net zero cottage, and sit there for 14 days, which was actually kind of cool. But that was uh, March 16th, uh, 2020. That's noted building science educator and construction industry thought leader, Gord Cook. Gord is the principal of Building Knowledge Canada and a partner in construction instruction. For over 30 years, he has devoted his time educating the building industry about the benefits of applying building science to construct durable, energy efficient, and healthier homes. Gord joins me to discuss from a Canadian perspective, the state of building science in the residential construction industry, why it's so important to meeting today's challenges and what the differences are between the Canadian and U.S. construction markets. We'll go deep on the Canadian market. And what can we learn from each other? We'll also talk about what a typical journey looks like for Canadian builders who wish to incorporate building science into their business and construction practices. Residentially speaking, that's coming up. Wow, over a year. Yeah. So when does the border open up? Actually, the border here in Canada has been open to Americans coming up for about a month and a half. And uh, U.S. has said the border is now open for Canadians as of the end of this month. Okay. Do you have any work planned in the U.S.? We, I have some planned, certainly at CI Live, we have events planned. Uh, you know, my first sort of slated one was going to be uh, first week in December. And so still hopefully on tap for that. Good. Yeah. Well, we can't wait to see you. Um, so let, let's get started. So if you would, for the for the listeners, um, give us a little bit about your background. How did you get into the industry? And you know, how did you, how'd you get into construction? How'd you get into building science? Yeah, it's, I would say it's a pretty decent question. I, I'm an engineer, technically an industrial engineer, but I, I was never a great engineer. And, you know, I never spent time specifying or doing drawings. But I happened to meet up with a small manufacturing company out in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. For those who don't know, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan was kind of the hotbed of high-performance energy efficiency in housing. Fellows oh. by the name of Harold Orr, Rob Dumont at the University of Saskatchewan were doing a bunch of work. I happened to be working for, I got a job with a small manufacturer back in 1984, building something called a heat recovery ventilator. You would know what those are, and most now would know what that is, but certainly back in 84, not too many did. And I was uh, helping, uh, I was the production manager for that company. That was my first foray into, um, into the construction industry. Ultimately, I wanted to move back to where my family was. My wife and I wanted to move back to Ontario, and I became their sales agent, sales rep for that product, heat recovery ventilation. And you can imagine back in, at that time, 86, you're trying to sell something called an HRV and builders would say, why do I need that? And I'd say, because you're building tight houses. 
And they would say, am I? And I said, I don't know. So I bought a blower door, and started testing houses. And then they would find out they weren't building them very tight. And they would say, should I be? And I said, I don't know. I'll go get some training. So I went and got some training with great folks here in Canada. And ultimately, as much as anything, I was selling a product, heat recovery ventilation, but at the same time, helping builders build high performance, more energy efficient houses under a program called in Canada at that time, the flagship program was the R2000 program was what it was called. It was a federal government program that promoted the um, energy efficiency of houses. And it was basically a technology transfer program that is wasn't a marketing program. The idea was to train and they did train thousands of builders. I still meet builders today who would say, yeah, I was the first R2000 builder. Well, lots of builders were first at doing it. And um, builders changed the way they built, uh, started down this path of energy efficiency. And I just followed that journey and started doing, you know, I still have a small piece of that sales agency. We, we promote high efficiency products, um, boilers, solar, so on and so on. And, and now uh, the, the business itself, our company in Canada, Building Knowledge Canada, spun that off about 15 years ago to be a, strictly a building science company, helping builders build, I would say, higher performance houses. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of what we like to do. We're pretty not judgmental. Where are you now? Where would you like to be in three to five years? Let's see if we can help you get there. Yeah. So you came right out of school then, right into the industry and, and really haven't left. Well, a short for you, I should be clear. My first job was with General Motors right around the time General Motors was in their huge downturn. Okay. And they kind of said, we'd like you to stay, but we know you probably won't. So uh, I was only there a year and a half and they said, good luck to you. And that's when I moved to Saskatoon. Yeah. Huh, okay. So, so in some sense, Building Knowledge Canada grew out of this need to answer some of these questions of the builders as you trained yourself and, and, and developed knowledge and tested homes and your blower door testing and all that you've done you may have done you may be like the greatest blower door tester on the planet earth fair <laughs> statement but. well I, I would say our our little company now tests about six thousand houses a year and that's way yeah. harder working guys than myself doing that but yes i have tested personally thousands and thousands of houses um, primarily in this in the residential market we do some high-rise work i'm sure there's others who've done as many as i have but um uh, yes, I blowed or tested personally lots and lots of houses over the years and learned lots from that. Yeah. And then uh, over the course of those careers, I mean, you've also obviously worked in organizations within Canada, uh, within the U.S. too, or primarily Canada? Uh, definitely. As, as I said, Canada's been, was a very good partner and leader in this. The Our housing agency, our housing authority, Canada Morrison Housing Corporation, I always did a lot of research and I did a lot of work. Uh, on contract for CMHC and various housing initiatives. And then our uh, federal government also has a Natural Research Council and Natural Resources Canada that also have done extensive work in energy efficiency and they have various programs. Here in Canada, we've also had huge um, input from the utilities. The utilities have a requirement, if you will, an interest and a requirement to help uh, to, to make sure builders use their product uh, effectively and efficiently. So they've been great organizations to work with over the years. And then of course, I've always been a proud member of the Home Builders Association, my own local Guelph Home Builders, and then the, the national organization. So very pleased to work with those groups. I think the other thing that may be a little different for me than other building scientists, given my early connection to a manufacturer, 
I've always been really close to manufacturers and manufacturers associations, the, the window association, the insulation uh, manufacturers, and in, and in your case, as you know, you and I know each other through through the Dupont connection, and I've always been. Um, I've always, my feeling is I need to empower builders and it's, it's no good to give them a solution without saying, and here's a company that you may want to work with. So I've always tried to partner with and be respectful of making the linkages, if you will, between builders and responsible manufacturers. So we pride ourselves on finding responsible manufacturers who understand building science and understand the realities of building and try to link up those groups. Mm -hmm, sure. And then how did the relationship with construction instruction, because you're a partner, uh, that's the right word, partner, you're, you're associated with construction instruction, one of the three principals. And um, of course, they're based in Denver. Um, but you've done a lot of work with those guys. I've known you, you know, over the years, also working with with um, Marco Liberté and Justin Wilson. Um, how did that relationship develop? Yeah, and I'll take you right back to Saskatoon. So there I was building this product called Heat Recovery Ventilator under a brand name called Vanny, which was a big, tall Dutch guy by the name of Dick Vanny, who was the original designer of that equipment. That was the brand name. And Marc Liberté was the first United States distributor of that product. Oh, so that's, okay. how, that. that's how he and I met. Yeah. And over the years, I, we would compare notes. What are you doing? What am I doing? found out we were both doing very similar things. He was doing training and education in order to sell the product. And ultimately he said, hey, Gord, I could use some help in the US. And just given, you can imagine a Canadian coming across the border, rightly so, the, the um, immigration folks would say, what, what are you doing down there? And, and uh, you know, should you be doing that? Are there not other folks in the US can do it? And so it, it, it was very nice for me to become a partner in construction instruction. So any work I do in the US, is as a partner in construction instruction. So like-minded business, you know, training, education, building science. Um, in Canada, we do more actual energy rating work. Uh, that's what we offer to builders in our local market, the Toronto market or greater Toronto area. Um, CI doesn't do that specific work, but uh, energy ratings, but otherwise very, very similar work. Yeah. You know, I uh, before I came to Tyvek in 2006, I was selling into the glass industry for DuPont, a different business, laminated glass. But I had to go across the border to Canada. I had customers in Canada, and that was always the most treacherous part of the trip. Like, you know, you know, giving the answer to what are you doing here it was always customer meetings, right. by the way. And, and you had and, to get in the canoe and portage across the. Right. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And if you, I always found if you let your guard down for one minute, then they they'd find a weakness in your argument and you'd be sitting in a room for 30 minutes asking, asking more questions, answering more questions. Very similar. And the interesting part is, uh, you know, now with the NAFTA, now the U S Canada trade agreement as a professional engineer, as long as I take my, literally have to take my diploma off the wall every three years, take it to the border and say, I'm a PNG, I qualify uh, under the uh, free to trade agreement to, to freely work in the U S as long as I'm doing work for an American company. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Well, let's turn to building science a little bit. And, you know, so building science is a term, uh, maybe when I use it, I think about, you know, the physics of the building and good building practices and understanding that you have enough understanding and knowledge so that you don't make problems worse or you solve problems, certainly, and or don't exacerbate certain situations. So um, with that understanding, you know, what, why is building science relevant and important for today's construction, construction industry? And I guess, I guess I asked you to think about Canada primarily, and maybe if you want to compare or contrast that to the U.S., but why, why is building science important for today's environment? 
Yeah, and your first statement is actually the most important. It's a relatively new term, right? We, we've known the physics of heat flow, therm, the basics of thermodynamics for centuries, frankly, but implying that, applying that to specifically to construction is, is a relatively new concept. And I, I can proudly say much of the early building science work was developed right here in Canada. Many of the building scientists that are in the United States now, Joe Stieberg, for example, is, it was a Canadian. Now he's a proud American, but um, I, you know, I was in school at the same time Joe was. Neither one of us were studying building science, but ultimately we, we both ended up, him uh, more so than I, at least early on. So it is a, an important term and, and very much to your point that it's, a, it's applying the physics and the science. And it's just, we like to say it's one of the tools that you should be using to understand the, the, I would say the implications of the decisions you make. Builders have to make decisions based on price and product availability and, and trade knowledge. But one of the decisions in, in our opinion they need to make is what is the physics behind this? Because there's so many products and so many different types of uh, construction materials, you kind of would like to know how, which ones play nicely together, which ones yeah. work well together. And then you think about the demands of homeowners and even of architects and designers wanting to do new things all the time. It sure would be nice to make sure before you put those elements in your in your buildings that they're going to play nicely together, that everything's going to work. And you think about that incredible complexity of building a house, you know, 2000 bits and pieces with 15 to 20 different trade contractors all showing up. We like to talk about that image all the time, right? If there's a piece of dirt and let's load up with 2000 bits and pieces and let's let 15 to 20 different people arrive at different times and yeah. put this together, this house, how do we make sure of that it's all going to work together? And um, that's why I, you know, I feel building science is, is relevant, if you will, or so important for builders to understand. It's one of the most complex manufacturing processes out there. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is crazy when you think about it, right? Like building yeah. your own, you wouldn't build your own refrigerator, but you're going to build your own house. Right. And yeah. and even take, you know, in the early days, my early days, right around now, that is, you know, mid-October, end of October, early November, the industry would be slowing down. They would have poured 15 or 20 basements, capped them off and said, okay, now we'll finish off some houses. Well, now we build all the way through the winter. So imagine digging a hole and some say digging hole. I remember being in Edmonton and seeing this giant ice pick on the back of a backhoe. Yeah, we're digging the basement. No, you're not. Wow. You're chopping up icebergs to wow. put in a, an eight foot hole and then you're gonna backfill it, put concrete in it in the middle of winter, it's minus 30 and you're building a house. Boy, that's complex piece of manufacturing. Not too many can do that. Uh, no, other industries are doing that. So it's a very complex industry. And I would say it's a little helpful and I would say a little stress relieving to understand the science behind all of those, how all of those elements work together. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you a question. I'll put it out there. But actually, while you were talking, I thought of a different one. So the question I was going to ask is what's the risk of not educating yourself if you're a builder or contractor. But the question that came to my mind is, do you get calls the majority of your calls come from builders who have a problem and want to get that solved, or they've gotten a little bit of knowledge and now they're kind of scared, scared may not be, you know, but they're apprehensive about, Ooh, am I doing the right thing? Where does your work or is it a or is it an even mix? Where's your work tend to come from? The good news is 
it's not an even mix. That is the, the builders that are calling out of the blue with a problem are less and less. And I, I'll attribute that to Canada's early work, that R2000 program that I mentioned. Builders have always had access, whether they took it or not, but they've always had access through government training or utility training. As I said, Enbridge Gas here, before that it was Union Gas, Union and Enbridge, have always done a really nice job of making training available to builders. And of course, November, December, January, February, builders weren't doing much and at that time, so they would be in classrooms. So typically they have a little bit of knowledge. They might run into a small problem and go, oh, I remember hearing about this. I better call one of those guys. But generally, the good news is most builders are coming to us with a little bit of knowledge and saying, hey, I probably need to know that a little bit better. Could you help us? So that's the good news. We we do struggle. It, I find it difficult when a builder, I, I will say the most devastating is when a builder's lost the trust of a homeowner and after the fact, they're trying to skate around issues that they've got. And that's you know frustrating. Well, I wouldn't say frustrating for me. It's certainly frustrating for the builder. What we feel like we bring to that is relax. Let's calm down. Let's understand the science behind this. We know with a, some simple work, we, we can figure out what the problem is. That was, you know, as, a, as I said to you as an engineer, but not a particularly good one. I, you know, it was really comforting for me to take classes from the Joe Stebricks of the world, the John Straubs of the world and go, okay, I, here's five things that I can check out and I can at least narrow down the problems in that house. And I, you know, I can recount lots of cases where I have a checklist get down to, you know, checklist one, two, and three and get to number four and go, oh, that's the most likely candidate. That's really helpful, I would say, to builders. And if um, if I was to ask you, so if I was to ask that question about what's the risk to a builder contractor of, you know, ignoring or not paying attention to, not educating themselves around building science, I guess you just mentioned an answer is obviously losing the trust of their of their customer brand and reputation damage, not to mention time and money and effort and so forth. Yeah. And that, I think to my mind in today's world, the single biggest risk be given, think about the access to information. If you don't know this, guess who can find this out in short order? Yeah. Good I'm, point. I'm, I'm, I should be less, and I am less and less surprised when I go, your, some of your listeners will know this in the province of Ontario, the most popular populous province of Canada, um, you know, it, we have a mandatory new home warranty program. And so homeowners get to realize if, if I'm not happy with what the builder's done, I can go to the warranty program. And I end up doing some forensics calls for that. And it, it's kind of interesting when I get to the house and the homeowner has an infrared camera, they've purchased an infrared camera because they, as one, as they say to me all the time, you know, I spent almost a million dollars on this house. What's another two grand to find out the fifth and one client said to me the 53 defects in the insulation in my house wow. well, they weren't defects they were blue spots on the infrared camera but he saw those as defects um, another uh, homeowner had bought a anemometer something for checking airflow and he said mine's probably not as good as yours actually his was better than mine at least more expensive than mine and he said yeah i i don't mind so if if the homeowners have access to this information that's the real risk for homeowners is to, oh, sorry, for builders, is to understand that homeowners have access to this information. And if they know more than you do, this isn't gonna go very well. Right. Yeah, great point. Do you, um, 
do you have any interesting application stories to share? Do have you seen any things from builders that just, you know, obviously without sharing names, but any head scratchers that you just I don't know, maybe maybe, you know, maybe an, an easy one that they just kind of missed, and then one that's maybe a little more subtle from a building science perspective? Yeah, there are lots, as you could imagine, in that forensics world. You know, I'm known in the mechanical side, ventilation and so on. So, you know, I'll give you a quick example. I flew all the way to Russia with an with a manometer that measures pressure differences to help sort out, as odd as this may sound, as a builder from Canada who's actually building houses in Russia. And they're having a backdrafting problem with a chimney. And as much as I tried to explain over the phone, they flew me to... Russia, I was doing other things there too, but to diagnose a problem and magically it's a chimney on the outside of the outside of the wall. Um, that chimney is cold and we know cold air likes to go down. Yeah. And so the chimney would, and it's a tall house, the chimney, chimney would constantly backdraft and would get worse when they turned on the big range hood. And it was, you know, it was kind of interesting to me. We've known about that in Canada for years. I still do these perform these performance elements in Canadian houses where builders, I can't get it though. I don't understand it. The air won't go up that chimney. Well, basic building science physics, right? Of air, of cold air falls, warm air rises. And if you've got a big mass of cold chimney on the outside uh, connected to the bottom of the house, you're going to get backdrafting of that chimney. How do we make the air go back up that chimney? Got to get the chimney warm, so on and so on. So that's a pretty simple, straightforward one, but one that I still end up doing a couple times a, a, a wow. year, I would say, for builders. Less obvious to builders, specifically in Canada, which the Southeast uh, U.S. knows way too well, are humidity problems in the summertime. And we're starting to see that, I would say, seven to 10 years later than, say, the southeast of Florida, where we most, most houses now in, in Canada, most new houses put in air conditioning, but those air conditioning systems aren't optimized for latent removal. That is, we think about heat gain through glass and heat gain through walls, but what we tend to forget is there's heat gain associated with moisture perspiration, respiration, um, uh, air leakage, ventilation, that moisture that's in the air. And in the same way that the Southeast US has started to realize they have to change their mechanical systems to emphasize dehumidification better, we actually have to do that in Canada as well. That we're gonna to have to start to recognize that just air conditioning house doesn't necessarily look after the relative humidity. So that's a little more subtle and it's a bit of an aha moment when, when builders say to me, I'm having more and more moisture problems. We used to have them in the winter time, right? In Canada, condensation on windows, that was pretty normal. That's why HRVs were sold, heat recovery ventilators. But now there's this moisture problem in the summer and it's just started to creep into us a little bit. So one of those ones, the benefit, I guess, of me working across North America is to say, oh, I've heard about this before. I've seen this before yeah. in Florida. Now I got to bring it to Canada. And it's only for four weeks out of the year as, as opposed to four months in Florida, but still it's an important element. Right. I want to talk a little bit about U.S. and Canadian differences, maybe in approach or practices. Um, is it so first I'll ask you to put your Canadian modesty aside. Is it true that uh, my impression has always been and you kind of reference it a little bit that the building science tends to start in Canada and maybe flows down into the US. I don't know if that's a fair, accurate representation, but 
kind of maybe leading the maybe some of the thought leaders um, or leading the way in the, in the in the science or the practices, and then the, the U.S. kind of maybe adopts it at some later point. Um, one is that a fair assessment, and what does that mean then for where the U.S. and Canada are relative to their to their evolution of in building adopting building science practices? Sure, and and I would say you know you think about what started the energy efficiency work was the really the oil embargoes of the seventies, and that was very clearly a northern climate thing. That is, you weren't heating houses in Florida, so you weren't as worried about the price of oil in Florida. Okay. So the building science work certainly started in the north. It would be unfair of me to say it was Canada, but per capita. Canada did more work, but there's great folks, University of Minnesota, Pat Holman and uh, Gary Nelson at uh, Energy Conservatory making blower doors. So it'd be it'd be naive and wrong of me to say they weren't doing work in, in uh, Minnesota, but there was a lot of work, government research, government funded work in Canada. So I, I think it is fair to say per capita, we had more building science work being done and that did float its way across the border. What I think is pretty fascinating now is to some extent, my Canadian folks listening, buddies will listen, say, you know, don't, don't, um, uh, don't tell all the dirty secrets. But right now, there's many parts of the U.S. that are ahead of Canada. For, for example, was it 30 U.S. states now require lower door testing of all new houses? We can't seem to get that done in Canada for a number of reasons. Builders, the building is, the industry has been reluctant to require or allow blower door testing to be a requirement of code. Still lots of blower door testing being done under voluntary programs, but yeah. it's not a code requirement other than in the province of British Columbia. And, you know, I think that's unfortunate. I, I think when all of the builders we work with understand that actually blower door testing is a good thing, but there's a little bit of um, resistance to making it a mandatory requirement in Canada. So we're perhaps more voluntary, but so I would say, we, we started off the building science work, got a really good kickstart to it that has migrated south, not just from Canada, but south from, say, Minnesota, Boston, other places. Mm -hmm. um, and in some places, the U.S. has now picked that up and go, hey, this actually works for us in, in the south as well. So I, I would that's the way I would say it. I would say our base knowledge in Canada, you know, we have a really good understanding in Canada. I, I can ask this question. What is your primary air barrier? And most builders in Canada can answer that right away. In the U.S., they would go, uh, what do you mean? Yeah. Was well, it the drywall? Is it the Tyvek? Oh, oh, let me think about that. Whereas in Canada, it would be very obvious very quickly. Now, in, in our case, we almost immediately turned our vapor barriers into our air, into our air barriers. So most builders would say, oh, it's, it's the poly. That's, that's my air barrier. It's also my vapor barrier. So it's maybe a little simpler choice. Um, but that's where I would say... We, we have maybe a little better base knowledge and, and, uh, but the U S is quickly caught up, I would say. Yeah. I guess at your average ambient temperature, like you want to know what your air barrier is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although there's still a little bit of confusion as to what's more important, the vapor aspect of it, of the air, air barrier type, but, but in general, we, we have, we know what a cold draft feels like and we know that nobody likes it anywhere right. in Canada. And how about building codes? Are they, uh, the folks follow them more prescriptively or are there performance paths or are there differences between the countries? And yeah, definitely. We've been a little, most of our codes have been uh, prescriptive path codes. It's only been 
recently, like 2010, that there was performance paths, or at least easy performance paths. There was always a performance path allowance, but it wasn't uh, well-defined and you felt like you, you stuck with prescriptive. And now I would say we're following the U.S. a little bit. What I think is the most important part of um, building codes in both U.S. and Canada is the idea of publishing codes well in advance. I'll call them step codes or tiered codes. Here's where we're headed, folks. You guys do it in the various versions of the ICC that you know that each version, each subsequent version is going to be a little more. Canada start to do that as well. We're going to be publishing our first uh, tiered code. The National Building Code of Canada 2020 is outlining the path over the next 10, 15 years. And that, to my mind, very powerful. You think about large builders, large developers who are, you know, developing land that's 10, 15 years out, it's really nice for them to know no. uh, where things are going. And programs like Energy Star, for example, were very helpful to the building community because we could say to them, someday all houses are going to be built this way. So it gave them the leading builder said, well, if it's going to be that, that if that's going to be code in three years, I'm, I might as well do it now, or at least get started at it and get some marketing. So this idea, what's been really helpful to the industry is to see where the industry is headed so that you can make some decisions in advance and not just playing catch up all the time. So the U.S. is on this three-year three -year cycles. Uh, Canada's not. And so when was the last update before 20, would you say 2020? Our national building code, much like the U.S., it's a model code, right? It's yeah. a, it, it's not mandatory. It's on a five-year cycle, 2010, 2015, 2020. And then it's up to each individual province to decide if they want to adopt or not. Um, until very recently, there was various provinces, Ontario, British Columbia, uh, Quebec, each had their own version of building code. It was Oh, 90% the same as the national, but it literally was their own. There's now a general agreement in place that all provinces will adopt on their own schedule, but they will adopt specifically the national building code. And that's, again, I think a, a good a good sign for manufacturers and for builders to say we can get some consistency. So that's an important trend. There'll be a little bit of, oh, uh, you know, angst is, you know, what's the difference between the Ontario code and the national code or the Quebec code and the national code, but it, that'll be a fairly short little transition. And then we'll all have this really nice five-year cycle that we can uh, make decisions on. Yeah, sure. Great. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of your work with builders. Um, as you do work with builders across Canada or even across the U.S., like, do you see common issues uh, misapplication um, problems kind of arise. What are the what are the most common things that you see that um, you tend to need to address? Yeah, it's a fair statement. And you know, in our world as building scientists, we're not structural guys. We're air, heat, and moisture flow guys. And so you will know. And it, it moves back and forth a little bit regionally, which I'm sure we'll get to. But getting that air tightness under control has been. Um, a big issue, certainly in the U.S. To some extent, again, because we're not blower door testing in Canada, air sealing, at least recently, it hasn't been as big a deal. That is, though Canada has always done a better job of air tightness. You know, the, we, we historically, because of condensation issues in houses, in attics and wall cavities, you know, we started making houses pretty nice and tight in the 80s through the 90s. So the average house in Canada is has always been more airtight than the average house in the US. But 
as houses gotten more complicated, we're doing more and more multifamily buildings. For example, about 60% of what Canada builds across the country is multifamily, which I think yeah. in the U.S. it's only, you know, 80, 20, 20% multi, if, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. It's about, it's about a third multifamily by units, but, you know, square footage or wall area, it's 10, 15% probably. Fair enough. And so Canada by unit numbers, it's 50 to 60%. And then air barriers take on a different connotation, right? It's not just about exterior, it's interior. So air tightness, but the one and no surprise to you and it, it to my mind, it's still the liquid water uh, issues that we've got. We, we've spent a lot of time in Canada on vapor barriers, vapor barriers, vapor barriers. We've kind of moved that off to air barriers, but if I compared U.S. and Canada, if I travel houses in Canada versus the U.S., the one thing that immediately uh, uh, jumps out at me is that we don't do nearly as, as much on the exterior to manage moisture penetrations, except for British Columbia. And you go, why is that? Because uh, they get way more rain than we oh, do in the yeah, rest of Canada. Oh, and they've had a history of problems. So that's, I would say, the issue that we have in the rest of Canada and, and builders will say, well, I really haven't any problems. Yes, but you need to remind yourself these, these issues take a while to show up and, and, and your house are getting more complicated all the time. You have bigger windows, less overhangs, uh, more complicated roof lines. So I don't want it to, I don't want it to catch up to you 10 years from now and you need to, you need to respond to that. So those are the things that we're, we're trying constantly trying to remind them that your number one challenge is, water get that done right now you're going to think about air tightness you know you're doing a good job of that but let's touch you up on that um, and then move on from there the the other issue i i would say interesting one from a canadian perspective is is basements we are primarily a basement country why because we're a cold country and that means we have to get below frost line yes we do some slab on grade but for the most part canada's a basement uh country and yet we haven't really converted our thinking from basements to get below frost line, but now wanting them as living space, lower living areas. Yeah. And as homeowners make that transition, you know, I, I can give you the example. My mom and dad built their house in 54. They didn't finish the basement until I turned 14 in 19, uh, what was that? 1974 or something like that. And so for 20 years, the basement was just a place to shoot hockey pucks and and, and you didn't worry about it. And the minute my mom and dad finished the basement, we never actually used the basement again because it was this damp, cold place. You had to put, you know, oven oven mitts and a toque on to go watch TV down there. And But now people want to use their basements as, as living space. And I would say builders haven't really responded to that. And we're trying to remind them that if you don't finish it for them, the weekend warrior is going to come in with a beer and pizza and finish it. And if you haven't managed moisture correctly below grade, moisture and te surface temperatures, you're going to be at risk. Well, it's that they, they're the ones that finished it. Maybe so, but you're still going to get the phone call when there's problems. So it, that's one area that we're trying to stress across the country. Understand that, stop calling them basements, start recognizing someday, very soon, they're going to be a lower living level and you got to make them healthier to live in. Yeah, great. You know, so shameless plug here uh, with construction instruction leading the way you all did a webinar for us um, a month or six, seven, eight weeks ago, which is up on our Education Hub website, but um, where we talk through the physics and science of of um, uh, below grade insulation, obviously involving um, uh, basements and so forth. 
and um, with some great commentary and insights from Pat Holm. You mentioned Pat Hillman at the University of Minnesota kind of leading the way there. So if folks want to learn more about that, certainly check out that webinar. A lot of great information shared there. But it's it's an interesting space. It's a, um, yeah, we, we had tremendous, I will say we had tremendous response to that. Um, it was actually our most highly registered webinar of the year, which I thought it might be kind of niche because not everybody builds, you know, basements. Um, but it was really a popular topic. There seem, it seems to be fruitful ground, to your point, for, for sharing knowledge and, and educating folks. Yeah, it's it's really an interesting one. You know, man lived in caves for about 200,000 years, and now it seems like we want to live back in them again. And, right. and I, I really respect the work that Pat did, because we did joint studies here in Canada, John Straub at University of Waterloo, and, and we kind of put our head in the sand, I guess pun intended, and that whole idea of basements. I, I often like to tell the story, Alan, and in the same week, I was in a place called Sudbury, Ontario, which is the edge of the far north, the Great Canadian Shield. It's, you know, granite. I'm standing in a model home and I feel this boom, boom, this rumble around me. What the heck is that? Uh, they're digging the basement next door. Well, they weren't digging the basement. They were blasting out of the rock to dig this basement to put, you know, and I'm like, really, how much does that cost? This is a number of years ago, well, 15 to $20,000. And then in the same week, I was in San Antonio, Texas, in this beautiful hillside, they're building a community. And I'm saying, wow, this would be great for a walkout basement. Oh, we don't want to do that. They're actually filling in the side of the hill to create a slab on grade. Right? And I said, how much does that cost? About 20 grand. So in, <laughs> in one market, we're spending 20 grand, to, 20 grand to force a hole in the ground. And the other place, they're spending 20 grand to, to avoid putting a hole in the ground. Right. And it's just that contrast of, you know, both can work, but why, why are we going to that trouble to dig a hole in the ground when we have other ways of doing it? So, yeah. you know, that's a, a Canadianism, I guess, is everybody likes to truly have a man cave below okay. grade. Right, yeah. right. But back for a moment, you made an interesting comment on the um, water management still being an issue. Um, about five years ago, I had a global role and I got to travel the world a little bit and it, with respect to Ty, the Tyvek business and looking at um, wood frame you know, construction. And my observation was, and I want to check this with you. So uh, my observation was in these other uh, countries, and I'm thinking like Norway, Scotland is a heavy wood frame, Japan for seismic reasons, Korea, um, they, they tend to, you know, the cladding is off, there's a ventilated cladding, there's a space between the cladding and the, and the wall. And it was always my and so and they, they weren't nearly as rigorous as maybe we are in the US where the cladding's up hard against the um, Against the sheathing or the or the weather barrier, um, and I always thought that that was the reason why there was less attention to water management. They obviously improved the drying ability of the wall. There's less pressure driving force pushing that water through. In Canada, the, the codes require ventilated cladding. Is that true, or is that just a practice that they've come to adopt? Well, and so, is that a reason for for maybe a less emphasis on on some of the water management? You make an excellent point. I, I like to say brick cladding is incredibly forgiving, although it you know absorbs a lot of water. That airspace, assuming there is an airspace, and generally there is, that makes it very forgiving. So they use very traditional black paper. They still call it tar paper, but it's you know black paper. And you and I know the limitations of those products. But it, that ends up being that drainage space and vent space is is very forgiving. Yeah. And and then our second choice, at least early on was vinyl siding and vinyl siding is hung loose. And by by definition, it has a space. Um, there are markets that are more dominant stucco. You go to Manitoba, 
but Manitoba is very dry climate, lots of drying potential, right? Cold more often. So lots of drying potential to the outside. So we have had more forgiving exterior cladding assemblies. And that is, I, I would agree with you. That's a reason why we haven't paid the same attention to detail of our water management. Now, as we see cladding choices changing, much like we see in the US, the synthetic stones, the, the stuccos, the I'll call it engineered wood and sidings or the cement board sidings that are clapped tight to the side. I, I, I'm saying the risk is going up and less overhangs, the flat roofs, uh, bump outs, more windows, balconies. We're saying you guys need to step up here a little bit. Uh, yes, you've been lucky, not lucky. You've been fortunate that because of forgiving cladding systems, you haven't had an issue, but you have to be more mindful of this water management issue as you start to change uh, cladding choices and designs. Yeah, yeah, well said, well said. I wanna cover one more topic before we get to a short quiz um, and, and test your knowledge, right? Um, how ironic. Um, <laughs> so uh, I wanna talk continuous insulation for a moment. Uh, what, in, in the US, you know, it's a small percentage of homes are built with above grade, you know, continuous insulation, exterior continuous insulation, on the outside of a home uh, above grade. In Canada, what's the situation with um, with foam or exterior insulation? It's a great question. We we certainly do better from a percentage wise of putting an exterior insulation, and sometimes it's foam, and sometimes it's uh, mineral fibers. I, I would uh, suggest that there's a nice history there from go right back to that R2000 program, where even back in the 80s they were promoting not just a two by six wall, but higher levels of thermal performance. And so great manufacturers, competitors of yours, as you will know, uh, both both Dow at that time and Owens Corning did a really nice job of educating the industry, showing them that this was a viable option. And we started doing it. One of the things that enabled that, I would say, is we had a, a, a greater affinity towards uh, walls without a structural sheathing product. So rather than OSB or plywood, we would use either a shear panel or lead in braces. And so that made it a little easier for builders to think about, a little more cost effective. Now, uh, we would, I, would, I wouldn't necessarily encourage that. Um, certainly in the U.S., you know, you, you think about seismic zones and wind zones, and even in Canada, we're starting to realize because of climate change, eh, maybe we do need some more structure. Um, but that certainly facilitated that conversation of exterior insulation. So we've had a little longer success at it. But but I'll be very clear. You may recall I, I mentioned this idea of um, cooperating with or partnering with manufacturers. It, it was really clear to us that when a builder embraced and was able to accept uh, help from good manufacturers, that really facilitated getting that insulated sheeting on the wall. It it you know it wasn't the 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 hurdle wasn't the thermal part of it. It was how do I do this? How do I detail it around windows? And what 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 fasteners do I use? Uh, I, I recall when uh, we were doing some demonstrations at CI Live in Denver, we wanted to put two inches of uh, exterior insulated sheathing foam, in this case, on a wall. And, and Justin was trying to find the right fastener. And he said, Gord, could you just bring him down a box of, of, uh, of fasteners, which I did. And, uh, and so I would say we, we're, we've had a little longer history that we have the, the, the application guns, we have the fasteners available to us. So we, we have gone a little quicker. Now, that said, not all builders are using it. Um, and there are barriers to it. Um, you know, even simple things 
you know, it, that should make it easier in the U.S. When you when you do brick cladding, you need a brick ledge to to, to support the brick. Yeah. When you make a thicker wall, now your foundation wall just got thicker, or or does it? Maybe you could put, use a steel lintel, but so that's actually one of the biggest barriers in Canada. If I want to put on two inch of insulated sheeting, because that ends up, you know, we've shown pretty much in Canada the net zero wall in Canada, the wall you aspire to build, is a two by six wall with two inches of insulated sheathing, you know, that pretty much gets you there. And, and I'm mindful of reminding of John Straub and I were on a, a panel conversation and he, he did a really nice job of answering a question from a builder. The builder said, this was down in uh, New Brunswick, Eastern Canada, you know, where are, wall go, what, where are walls going? He goes, you know, you guys have been doing two by six now for 35 years, it's about time to change. You, you're gonna put one inch of exterior insulation on, that's going to be a big challenge to understand which fasteners work. How do I do it? The minute you do one inch, you're going to go, well, it's just as easy to do inch and a half or two inch. So why don't I do that? And the minute you figure that out, because at two inch, you have to think about cladding attachment. So then you're going to do what they do at the Tim Hortons new building or the Starbucks they're building, which is you're going to go to two back to two by four and you're going to put three inches of insulation oh. on the outside. And so as you move along, you're going to get more like the commercial buildings. And all he said, all buildings in North America kind of look the same. Huh. You're going to put more insulation to the outside once you figured out how to attach and how to fasten. But the big hurdle is that first one of getting an inch on and take biting that bullet or biting that uh, piece of bacon, whatever you want to call it, whatever the analogy is, get that done. And then you start saying, Hey, I can get inch and a half to two inch out here and, and I'll be just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, okay. So quick quiz here before we close. Um, my first question to you, a house needs to breathe true or false. Yeah, and you know this is going to be a longer answer than you yeah. want. Um, I, I always say it this way, and some who will be listening may have heard me say this. You know, I always say it this way. Exactly how many holes do your customers want you to leave in the walls or attics of your house? And the answer is none. Right. Walls need to dry. They need the ability to be able to dry. Houses do need to be ventilated or breathe. How do we used to ventilate houses? not through electrical outlets, but by opening windows. So what you really want is an airtight vapor permeable or vapor dryable building assembly with proper ventilation. And if they're not gonna open windows, which they're not, then you put in mechanical ventilation. Now you got the best of both worlds. You have a wall that's airtight, doesn't let in moisture, bugs, and so on. If any moisture does get in, it's able to dry because it's permeable. And then you get to ventilate independently of that by either opening windows or turning on mechanical ventilation. So, you know, I was, I, I met you and I was over in Russia and about 10 minutes into the conversation, the guy says in broken English, walls got to breathe. And I said, huh. no, walls <laughs> need to be airtight vapor permeable, pryable, if you will. And then we're going to ventilate houses. Yeah. Wasn't an international incident, was it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's see, other question. Um, and I've, I've asked this of each of the guests, and obviously you get different answers. And I know you guys like to have fun with this question as well when you're when you're out teaching. Um, how long should a home last? I, I just love that question. You know, Mark, you've probably asked it of Mark. And you know, I, I would say our building codes in Canada are kind of set up 75 to 100 years serviceable life. But when you travel to uh, Europe and other places and you, you think about their codes, 
their houses last five, 600 years. Yeah. And I can give you a little example. I actually had a, a tour of a private castle in upper highlands of Scotland. And it's, you know, big old stone walls and so on. And um, I, I was saying to the, the gentleman who owned the house, I said, uh, oh, I noticed some uh, skylights in, in the building. And I said, uh, tell me about that. And he says, ah, Larry, the record show, the skylight went in in 1847 and they've leaked every year since. <laughs> and he said, but at least they don't do any damage because it's made out of stone. And so he, they look at it as the risk versus reward. Of course, buildings need to last. That building was 800 years old. Wow. And, and of course you want it to last that, that long. And, and we have, Justin shows pictures of, a, of his a relative's house back in the Scandinavian countries that I think it's 400 year old wood frame building. And so we can make them last a long time. And, and why wouldn't we? So serviceable life of 75 to 100 years. And then I would say replaceable bits and pieces and parts is what you'd like to know. The, the structure itself, though, we should think about at least 100 to 150. Once it's made to 100, 150, then you can go, OK, I don't mind taking off, recladding new windows and so on. Yeah, great. Hey, you do a great Scottish brogue. <laughs> Really well done. I'm sure there's Scotsman listening going, no, it's not no, even no, close. Right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. I think we'll uh, we'll close with that, Gord. It's been just wonderful to talk to you and um, and hear from you. We, we look forward to seeing you in the U.S. And uh, it's really been a fascinating uh, uh, time listening listening to your experiences and having you share some knowledge. So thanks again so much for, for being with us. Well, and thank you for the opportunity. As I, I said earlier, there's nothing better to me than the partnership you think about the best of all worlds would be partnership between builders and the complex job they have, their supply channel, including the manufacturers, and then add some government uh, research on top of that and support from the utilities. And that's where we like to play in is work with all of those folks to make sure we, uh, you know, I would say simplify the complex job of building houses. So thanks for the opportunity. Great. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by DuPont Performance Building Solutions, who provides the marketplace with a full suite of weatherization, thermal, and air sealing solutions, such as DuPont Tyvek wraps, flashings, and tapes, DuPont Styrofoam brand XPS rigid foam board, and Great Stuff and Frothback spray foams. DuPont knows the homes you build today will need to stand the test of time, expanding, contracting, breathing, and protecting for generations to come. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap.